Hello and welcome to Punch a Hole in the Wind, a look at some of the great thoroughbred racehorses who have graced our racetracks all around the world over the last century or so. I'm Ollie Hine and it's great of you to join me on this exciting trip down memory lane. My aim is to both remind you of some of your heroes from years gone by, but also to introduce you to some others whom you may not be so familiar with. Today, we're going to the late 1950s and early 1960s, and we're going to the USA. And if you're a keen US horse racing fan, those facts alone should confirm who it is we're going to talk about. A gelding who transcended the sport like few others, and whose very name still conjures up a whole raft of emotions. US racing journalist Joe Hirsch wrote a poignant line about Kelso that no one, it seems, can better. Once upon a time, there was a horse named Kelso, but only once. To understand the meaning seeping through these simple words is to understand the power that a horse who comes back year after year, trying his best, and Kelso really was one of the best, can have over the public. As Kelso was a gelding, he would only ever get to do his talking and winning on the track, and not subsequently in the breeding shed. And he did plenty of winning, becoming over many seasons not just a champion, but a folk hero. Kelso's pedigree was far from blue-blooded, although Manor War lurked further back in the bloodlines. By your host, out of the little-known Count Fleetmare, made of flight, his sire was harshly nicknamed the Magnificent Cripple, because he had one eye clearly higher set than the other, meaning he had to carry his head sideways to see straight. Some of his subpar traits were passed on to Kelso, who as a youngster was variously described as scrawny, runty, and hard to handle. Owned by Allaire Dupont, who named him after her good friend Kelso Everett, and trained initially by John Lee, they soon realised that he was a rig. His reproductive organs had not properly developed, making him an understandably grumpy soul at the time. He was therefore gelded at two, before running a race. Another DuPont family friend, Dickie Jenkins, was right there holding the young horse, while veterinarian George Rosenberger did what he needed to do. The unkind cut completed. Jenkins grabbed Kelso's testicles and launched them onto the roof of his barn, claiming that this was supposed to bring good luck. Bearing in mind what was to follow, it would be wrong to question this. Kelso's career that year was good, if unspectacular with a first and two seconds in some minor races, with little indication of the dream that would follow. Passed on to Carl Hanford's stable over the winter, Kelso suddenly started filling out and developing a real focus to his running. He didn't run at three until the Triple Crown was done and dusted, but his first two races, one by ten lengths and twelve lengths, showed that this was a different and much improved beast. A rare misstep in his next stakes race at Aqueduct was quickly amended for by a six-race winning streak, improving with each and culminating with victories against the older horses in the Jockey Club Gold Cup and Hawthorne Gold Cup, the former in a new US record of 3 minutes 19 and 4 fifths seconds. To place himself further in hallowed circles, he matched Manor War's 13 furlong record in the Lawrence Realisation Stakes. In a rare change of tradition, 
The Horse of the Year award went to the increasingly popular gelding rather than the Triple Crown Colts. Yet still, the best was to come. At four, in Eddie Arcaro's safe hands, Kelso was imperious, the highlight being his clean sweep of the big New York handicaps, the Metropolitan, Suburban and Brooklyn, a feat only achieved twice previously, and only Tom Fool had ever carried such burdensome weights. Kelso lumped around a huge 136 pounds in the Brooklyn. Another Jockey Club Gold Cup followed, as did a second Horse of the Year award. By now, he was a true star of the track, but he had captured the wider public's imagination in a way that no horse, except perhaps Native Dancer, had done for decades. Part of this was because of his huge versatility, as well as his consistency, and above all, his incredible never-say-die attitude. He was an extremely determined horse, recalled Hanford. If he saw a horse in front, he wanted to get him. You could take him back or send him to the front. By 1962, vast numbers of spectators were turning up to some of his races, and as often as not, he didn't let them down, invariably wearing a yellow ribbon on his bridle, around his almost Arabian-like head. Now partnered by Milo Valenzuela, his six wins included the Stymie Handicap and Woodward Stakes over ten furlongs, then a third Jockey Club Gold Cup over six furlongs further. Surpassing $1 million in winnings, he was a shoo-in for an amazing third Horse of the Year award, and usually now referred to as King Kelly. Aged six in 1963, he showed no sign of slowing down, to his adoring public's immense pleasure. Winning three quarters of his races, some over as short as a mile, as well as a fourth Jockey Club Gold Cup over two miles, a distance that his lean musculature was clearly well suited to, as attested by his five-and-a-half-length victory in front of a record 71,876 adoring fans. Unsurprisingly, an unprecedented fourth Horse of the Year award followed. He celebrated by being treated to his favourite snack, a chocolate sundae. You would be hard-pressed to find a horse as good aged seven as they were aged four. Yet... If anything, Kelso was arguably at the height of his powers. He now had an immensely talented new rival, Gunbow, with whom he swapped victories throughout the year, and with Kelso almost always carrying the bigger weight. The zenith of their rivalry came in the aqueduct handicap, which, being held on Labor Day, and with King Kelly always attracting a large following, meant that the crowd that day was immense. The horses duly delivered. Gunbow took off like a scalded cat, with Kelso being pushed after two furlongs just to keep within six lengths. But then his mythical courage and pig-headedness kicked in. Kelso utterly refused to be defeated that day, gradually reduced the gap, and finally broke his rival in a titanic homestretch matchup, getting up by less than a length. Writer David Alexander wrote after, I think it can be stated beyond dispute that the ovation Kelso received after his triumph on Labor Day at Aqueduct was the greatest ever given any horse in the history of the American turf, while daily racing form correspondent Charles Hatton described it memorably as a Niagara of sound. The finale was in the Jockey Club Gold Cup, 
the race that he had made his own for half a decade. And to prove his superiority, he not only won by nearly six lengths, but broke the US dirt record for two miles in the process. It didn't end there. A mere 11 days later, seemingly unfazed by his considerable exertions, he laid an extra ghost to rest. Having come second three times in the Washington DC International, he now went one better, scorching to victory, breaking the US turf record for 12 furlongs, registering 2 minutes 23 and 4 fifth seconds. It came as a surprise to no one that he was crowned Horse of the Year for an inconceivable fifth time. No other horse had more than three, and it is a record that will likely remain untouched forever. The US may have been going through upheaval and optimism in the early 1960s, but as much as anything, it was also the era of Kelso. David Alexander captured this perfectly when he reflected, if asked to state the reason why Kelso was the greatest racehorse we've ever known, I'd simply tell you that I think he's done more things better on more occasions over a longer period of time than any other horse in history. Or, maybe, I'd say it's just that I love him. Eddie Arcaro called him the best of all his rides without question, although he was also on record as saying the same about citation. Kelso's age began to catch up with him at eight, but he still managed top draw wins in the Whitney Stakes and Stymie Handicap. But then, just as he turned nine, he fractured a sesamoid bone and his adoring owner and trainer had no hesitation in immediately retiring him. A shocked public fully understood, but struggled to adjust to a racing life without him. Of course, the breeding shed was out of the question, but he adapted to life as DuPont's hunter for a few years, where his constant companions were an old hunter called Spray and a dog called Charlie Potatoes, who slept pretty much on Kelso's neck every night until he was run over by a truck. Kelso was in mourning for days and refused to eat. He still made plenty of public appearances to satisfy his adoring public. On the 15th of October, 1983, aged 26, he led the parade before his beloved Jockey Club Gold Cup. The following day, he succumbed to a bout of colic. His death was back-page news, pushing all other sports off. That was the hold that Kelso continued to have. Kelso was one of a kind said Hanford on his inauguration into the Hall of Fame in 2006. The way the game is today, we will likely never see a horse have that kind of success for that long. He continued, they don't make them like that anymore. In fact, they never did. To find out more about Kelso and other greats from the past, check out my book, Punch a Hole in the Wind, out now and available online and in bookshops. Next time, We'll go to a different part of the world and share the exploits of another great horse from another era who could punch a hole in the wind. But until then, this is Ollie Hine signing off and saying thank you for listening.